You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. If you listen to this podcast and you want to support further, there are two ways that I would love for you to do that. Go over to patreon.com forward slash redacted history. You can find that linked in the show notes below. This is where you can get better access to me. You can vote on show topics and so much more. And go subscribe to the YouTube channel. We're going to be uploading a lot of YouTube visual content to go with the podcast in the near future. And I'm really excited to roll all that out for you. So go subscribe so you don't miss anything. All of those can be found in the show notes below. Now let's get to the show. Cursed. That's how some would describe Haiti. Cursed from the very start because of how they achieved liberation and what happened after it. But it's easy to villainize the victim when you don't have all the details. The Haitian Revolution is only the beginning of this nation's story. This is the story of what happened after Haiti dared to overcome. And this is the Redacted History Podcast. Jean-Jacques Dessalines and his troop finished off the final battles of the Haitian Revolution in the nearly 13-year fight for freedom. This one man now held the fate of the entire country in his hands. Would he be a great leader? Or would Jean-Jacques succumb to the same fate as those before him. But Jean-Jacques Dessalines was a little bit different from the nation's previous leader, Toussaint Louverture. Dessalines worked tirelessly on various harsh and unforgiving sugar plantations. He was seen as rebellious and was often sold over and over again as an enslaved person. The markings all over his back were from the lashings received as punishment and these served as a constant reminder of how his story started. He was raised by a woman by the name of Victoria Monto. She was kidnapped from Africa and shipped to Haiti, but she was no ordinary woman. In fact, she was a warrior for the empire of Dahomey. She taught him everything he would need to in order to know where he came from and how to defend himself. Fun fact, Dahomey, where Victoria uh, was raised is the source material and the real life inspiration for the movie, The Woman King, starring Viola Davis that came out uh, recently. When the Haitian Revolution started and Jean-Jacques had an opportunity to join the troops, he was more than willing to fight. It's no wonder that he found himself in this position as the new leader of Haiti, declaring himself not just president or king, but emperor of Haiti. Still, his heart ached when he thought about 
all his people had endured. And that pain turned to rage. Jean-Jacques not only wanted prosperity for Haiti, but revenge. His first order of business was to have any remaining white French people on the island murdered. And I do mean any. It was difficult for the people of Haiti to think about not only murdering the Frenchmen, but the women and children as well. The people of Haiti were hesitant to carry out these orders, but no wasn't an answer to Jean-Jacques. He wasn't asking, he was telling. He believed that as long as any of the white French people remained in the country, they were a threat to Haiti and their newly gained freedom. A loose end, if you will. Jean-Jacques Dessalines made it his personal business to see that this order was carried out. He would frequently travel from town to town and conduct inspections. Anyone reluctant to kill would be heavily pressured. There were even reports that Dessalines and his men would trick those hiding to coming out by convincing them it was safe to emerge. And when they surfaced, they were killed immediately. It's estimated that anywhere from three to 5,000 white French people were killed as a result of these orders. Two people of color by the names of Henri Christophe and Alexander Petion worked to overthrow Jean-Jacques. They felt that Dessalines and his measures had gone too far. They planned in secret, and in 1806, they successfully carried out a plan to ambush and assassinate Jean-Jacques Dessalines. The exact manner of his death is unknown, but one consistency is that his body was brought into the city and dismembered after his assassination. A woman by the name of Marie Saint, who was a part of the revolution, gathered up his body parts. She had a reputation for being a mad woman, quote unquote. But the truth was, she was a victim who had been violated and left to mourn her deceased family. She made it her mission that Jean-Jacques Dessalines would receive a proper burial, and that she did. After Dessalines' assassination in 1806, Henri Christophe and Alexander Plétion split the nation in half. Alexander took the south, and Christophe took the north. Let's say they had very different management styles. These regions were referred to as the Republic of Haiti and the State of Haiti. Christophe started out as a drummer boy in the French army in 1779. In fact, he was a service member in the French military during the American Revolution. It's ironic how the French were more than happy to help liberate Americans, but did not keep that same energy for their own colony. Christophe was a long way from being a drummer boy. In 1807, he served as president of the state of Haiti and later declared himself king. He would be the first person to do so in Haitian history. Truthfully, he was obsessed with aristocracy and even had a castle for himself to live in, the Sans Souci Palace, and established a royal court. Unfortunately, his time as king was cut short. In 1920, an insurrection broke out and Christophe died. It is suspected that he died by suicide although there are some mixed reports on that. Alexander Petion, on the other hand, would grow up in what could be best described as middle class. But his African blood hindered his upward social mobility. Remember, Alexander and Christophe were both free people of color. His father was a white Frenchman, but his mother was biracial. He ran for election in the South in 1807 and was re-elected in 1811, and in 1816, he declared himself president for life. 
Just a heads up, these four life titles are going to be a reoccurring theme that lead to pretty terrible outcomes for the Haitian people. Unfortunately, Alexander Petion also would not live out his dreams as president for life, and in 1818, he died of yellow fever. But he did name a successor before passing, a man by the name of Jean-Pierre Boyer. Haiti was unified again in 1821 under Boyer. But despite this reunification, he inherited an economy that was on a fast decline. In the South especially, when Alexander Petion was in power, the citizens were only producing enough to sustain themselves rather than focusing on exports. He implemented what was referred to as code rural. These codes were very unpopular and made upward mobility difficult for those working the fields. Basically, if you worked the land, you were bound to that land with no hope of pursuing other endeavors. But his most unpopular action, agreeing to pay restitution to France. In 1825, King Charles X showed up on Haiti's shores with several warships. His demands were simple. Pay France for the death of the Frenchmen and the loss of their land and property or suffer the consequences. It was nothing short of a shakedown, intimidation. Boyer wasn't really in a position to argue, and he agreed to these terms. He also thought that maybe if France recognized them as a nation, then possibly everyone else would too. But his dreams of acceptance were naive at best. Even though Haiti had been its own country for nearly 20 years, no one wanted anything to do with them in the West. Slavery was still in full swing. Major players in the slave trades and benefactors of exploitive slave labor feared that if the country became too powerful, its influence and ideology would spread. The rebellious spirit was almost seen as contagious. So the rest of the Western world just completely ignored them. America, for instance, had watched the uprisings in Haiti and France and were petrified of something like that ever happening on their shores. You see, the spirit of rebellion was like dominoes falling. The entire reason that the Haitian people were motivated to finally rise up was in part because they watched the French rise up during the French Revolution in the late 18th century. The original amount France requested was 150 million francs, but it was later reduced to around 60 million francs in 1838. The agreement was ironically referred to as the Treaty of Peace and Friendship. Of course, Haiti didn't have this money, so they had to borrow most of the money from France, Germany, and America. Jean-Pierre Boyer decided that taxes and cuts to social and educational programs would help them pay back the debt faster, but this divestment from their own economy and well-being would have a long-term ripple effect. Imagine you're a country that's 20 years old, 20 years young, and before you can even get your feet wet on the sand on the beach, you're already paying back debt with interest attached to it. Imagine that the United States was paying back massive debt with interest attached to it in 1796. This debt would be one of the major hindrances for Haiti's growth for the next 100 plus years. It is estimated that by the time Haiti paid back its debt in 1947, including interest, they had paid nearly double what they originally owed. In 1838, the debt was reduced to about 90 million francs, which is equivalent to $30.127 billion USD in 2021. And it's estimated that over the course of the entire indebtedment period, 
Haiti paid over 112 million francs, which means they paid well over $30 billion back to the French government, all for the price of freedom. All the while, these payments redirected funds away from infrastructure, medical care, and the education of Haitian citizens. To this day, lack of infrastructure means that when hurricanes and natural disasters hit Haiti, they hit hard. Lack of medical care means the people die unnecessarily, and lack of education leads to poverty and crime, and the cycle continues. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Jean-Pierre Boyer, would continue to rule Haiti until 1843. However, between 1843 and 1915, Haiti would experience 22 different leaders. Very few finished out their terms, and the majority of them, which were either overthrown or assassinated, the shortest term presidents were only in office for a few months. In 1911, the U.S. started to get a little nervous about Haiti's ability to pay back their debt with all of the instability going on. You remember that guy, Woodrow Wilson, right? Well, he's kinda in this story too. In 1914, Woodrow Wilson seized gold reserves from Haiti and moved them to a bank in New York City at about a $500,000 worth. And in 1915, the then president of Haiti was lynched. The United States decided it was best to step in at this point. And in 1915, Woodrow Wilson sent in the Marines to occupy Haiti. When in doubt, occupation. Let's be clear here. The United States wasn't just occupying Haiti out of kindness and to look out for them. This was an effort to ensure that not only would the debt be paid back, but that Germany, who also lent Haiti money, would not be able to occupy the island for their own benefit. If you recall, around this time, we were in the thick of World War I and all of those happenings, which had Germany and the United States on opposite sides. So Haiti was really just being used as a political and wartime pawn. The United States even made an attempt to rewrite the Haitian constitution a little bit so that foreign countries could own land in Haiti. This clause was originally written into the Haitian constitution in order to avoid everything they worked for from falling apart. If a foreign power could own land, what is stopping them from taking over? Fortunately, this change did not pass, but the United States tried anyway. This was hardly a win for the Haitian people. During this time, there were several reports of abuse, suppression of freedoms, segregation, and incidences of sexual abuse involving both women and children. Skipping over to December 1929, around 15 Haitian citizens demonstrated in the streets to protest these conditions. The Marines fired shots into the crowd, killing about a dozen Haitian citizens and injuring many more. This will be known as the Kays Massacre. The Haitians had had enough of the United States shenanigans and occupation and attempted several revolts after this. The Kays massacre also exposed some of the atrocities happening in Haiti at the time at the hands of the United States government and military. Finally, in 1934, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt called the U.S. troops home. But the damage had already been done. Following this occupation, political leaders and organizations would continue to rise and fall in Haiti as they did before. Until 1957, when a man by the name of Francois Duvalier, better known as Papa Doc, would assume leadership over Haiti. Francois Duvalier was very different from the previous great military leaders we've highlighted, like Toussaint Louverture and Jean-Jacques Dessalines. As his nickname suggests, he was a doctor. He came from humble beginnings, but managed to make something of himself 
as a doctor. He would travel village to village and help treat people of various elements, including Yaw's disease. Yaw's is a bacterial infection that leads to sores and lumps on the skin. He was loved by the people and in no time he became Director General of Health Services. In 1948, he continued his rise and became the Secretary of Labor. Papa Doc would wait and increase his popularity for his own political run. He was well-liked by the people, but underestimated by his peers. Many didn't really see him as a threat, but he won by a landslide. Not long after he entered the office, someone would argue that a very different and very dark side to Papa Doc emerged. He jailed all of his political opponents and instituted a private military that was under his control alone. They ruled with fear and murdered anyone who opposed them. They made examples of these people by murdering them and leaving their bodies in public places to send a message. Even people who were in the wrong place at the wrong time could find themselves in danger of abuse or torture. No one was safe. The ruthlessness of this personal regime is what earned them the nickname Tonto Makut. In Haitian mythology, Tonto Makut is a child's worst nightmare. Disobedient children are taken away by the creature and the creature eats them for breakfast. And this army or creature grew and grew until it soon outnumbered the Haitian army. Tens of thousands of people were murdered during this time as president, the majority at the hands of this vicious military regime. Some for very little reason at all. Women also experienced high amounts of sexual violence at the hands of this military. In spite of these violations, surprise, surprise, Papa Doc had the respect of the United States. He frequently spoke out against communism, which during the 1950s was the key to the United States' heart. In fact, they were so supportive of him that when he had his first heart attack in 1959, they flew in their best doctors to provide medical assistance. But after this first heart attack, Papa Doc became weary that people would seek to overthrow him. And he wasn't wrong. Clement Barbeau, who was considered his right-hand man, took over while he recovered. But when he was better, Papa Doc had Clement imprisoned because he suspected that his friend wanted to overthrow him. When he was released, he wanted revenge on Papa Doc. He terrorized Papa Doc and his children, and Papa Doc threatened that he would end Barbeau. In 1963, during a failed attempt to overthrow Papa Doc, Barbeau, his brother, and some of his men were killed. But there was a rumor that Barbeau could not be killed and had the ability to turn into a black dog. Papa Doc ordered death to any black dogs on the island as a precaution. Regardless, Papa Doc leaned into his association with voodoo even claiming that he cursed President JFK for his lack of aid to Haiti, thus causing JFK's murder. Papa Doc also had a version of the Lord's Prayer in his honor and would inevitably be excommunicated from the church. In 1964, he too declared himself president for life, a title he would hold for another six years. Some would consider his methods ruthless. Others would say that his ruthless methods were necessary to instill fear in the hearts of his enemies and gain respect from the West. Haiti was also more stable than it had ever been in a long time, ironically. Papa Doc would have a second heart attack in 1970. His son, Jean-Claude Duvalier, Baby Doc, would follow in his footsteps as the next leader of Haiti at the young age of 19. Imagine being in charge of an entire nation at the age of 19 with a history as complicated as Haiti. Needless to say, he took directions from others who helped him continue his father's policies and low tolerance for criticism. He lived a very comfortable lifestyle and was accused of allegedly taking funds from the people. 
He would stay in power for 15 years before being overthrown and fleeing the country for France on a U.S. Air Force flight in 1986. He would return to Haiti 25 years later and die in 2014 before having to face any of the previous accusations. And you can guess what happens next. Several leaders followed by more political unrest even up to today. Since Haiti's inception in 1804, they have had roughly 45 political leaders. That's nearly the same amount of presidents the United States has had since 1789. The main difference is that the United States was given the opportunity to explore their independence, to take charge of it. They weren't shouldered with massive debt or a lack of support from other Western or even Eastern countries. I mean, it wasn't even until 1825 that France would even recognize Haiti as a country, and 1862 for them to gain recognition from the United States of America. And it's no coincidence that three years later, the United States would abolish slavery. Haiti has been bullied, extorted, and taken advantage of by countries and powers bigger than them. Since the beginning, their people and their resources were exploited for others' gain. But that never stopped them from fighting back and being brave and courageous. Haiti deserved better and they still do, but they've never stopped fighting. It's hard not to wonder what this mighty nation could have been if they had been given a fair chance at a fair start. Some would say that Haiti is cursed, but if Haiti is really cursed, then who cursed them? Until next time. This episode was written by Jordan Howard, edited and narrated by Andre White. I appreciate everybody who leaves reviews on the podcast. If you're listening to this and you haven't left a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, I would appreciate if you did so. <laughs> Leave a review, write a review, five stars. Uh, I genuinely appreciate that. It goes a super long way. <laughs>